So we are, um, it's been a couple weeks since we've been here, like two, two weeks, three weeks. Uh, so some of you may be feeling like I am, like a little bit uh, out of the swing of things. So let's just start by a little bit of review, if we might. Um, I know last time we were, we had a meeting uh, at our house last week on the subject of um, the reading, preaching, and hearing of the word uh, in worship, which is a really, really helpful study, a lot to be convicted about. And uh, a lot to, to learn from that. Uh, but the last time we were in this building, we were talking about kind of just the general principles for worship. Um, and uh, kind of our approach or our paradigm for worship. And uh, specifically, we spoke about something called the regulative principle of worship. Um, and I would just wonder if anybody would be able to stretch back in their memories long enough and remember to, um, you know, what that was. Could anybody give kind of just a definition or explanation of what what that principle was that we talked about yeah yeah that's a good that's a good explanation um, would anybody have anything to add to that or That's actually a perfect segue because my next question was going to be, we talked about these these three terms, elements, forms, and circumstances. How do we distinguish between those things? What are the differences between an element, a form, and a circumstance? Yeah. If you compare it to music, you know, music you shall sing, the music will be a part, or singing will mm-hmm. be a part. But then whether that's through the songs or through rock music or whatnot, um, and then the circumstances would be, I, don't, I can't even think of what that would be. Yeah, lots of times the circumstances. Yeah, lots of times the, the way I kind of think about it is, the, like you said, the elements are the specific things that we're supposed to do in worship reading the word, singing, prayer, the sacraments. The, the, the form is. Um, the way that those specific elements are practiced, and then the circumstances are kind of the general things of worship. You know, is your church service at 10:30 or is it at 9:30? You know, do you do you have orange chairs like we do for our worship service, or do you have wooden pews? You know, those are things that you know. There's there's common sense and there's wisdom and there's discussions that can be had. But at the end of the day, one church is not you know necessarily even breaking and. Um, with another church because they have different chairs or something, you know. Those are circumstances uh, that we have to deal with. So that, that's kind of some good vocabulary to keep in mind. And because that's kind of the, the paradigm that we're using, when we come to the subject that we're looking at tonight, which is singing and worship, what we're really trying to understand is what the Bible has said about singing and worship, what it has looked like, the role it's supposed to play, um, some kind of things that we can use as we... Um, select music and worship or enjoy music and worship and and all of those things. So um, tonight we're going to be talking about the subject of singing and worship. And what I really want to do is kind of look at two broad things. I want to look at um, the context of singing and worship. Um, This is really kind of answering the question, you know, what what role does singing play uh, in worship? And then I also want to look at the content of singing and worship, which these are kind of for lack of a better phrase, it's kind of asking, how do we know what's what, what's worth singing and what's not worth singing? And there's kind of two parts of that, really, the, the text that we sing, but then also the tune that we might use. And we'll, we'll talk about kind of the details of that in a moment. But I want to begin by talking about the context of singing uh, in worship. Um, and tonight I have just a bunch of scripture text. So let me just say, first off, if you have your Bibles, make sure those are ready. But also, I know it can be difficult to try and scribble down references as you're going through. If it would be helpful, let me know, and I'd be happy to post um, my notes on the. I'll, I'll, do, I'll post my notes on the Facebook page either tonight or tomorrow, so that you can get those and have the scripture text. And most of these, I'll just say, I found by um, just putting in singing, uh, sing, and song, you know, in the scripture. 
uh, search bar and you find a lot of different verses and just working through that is a great study in and of itself. But I've tried to kind of distill that a little bit. Uh, so before we get too deep into uh, the scriptures and what it has to say about singing, I do want to kind of just make one preliminary point, and that's this. The first thing we have to say about singing in worship is that singing is a part of worship. Um, there are over 201 verses that use either the word singing, sing, or song. So that kind of central concept is mentioned at least 200 times in the Bible. Uh, in the Old Testament, all the way through to the New Testament, the, not only in the book of Psalms, a lot of it comes up in Psalms, but also in the prophets and the historical books and the epistles and Revelation. In, you know, Throughout the scriptures, this is a concept that comes up again and again and again. So we have to understand that singing is a, a, a big part of worship. But the, the flip side of that is that while singing is a part of worship, singing is only one part of worship. And sometimes we'll be a little bit lazy in our speech and we'll talk about the worship as if it's the singing or the music. And we'll even say things like, hey, we're looking for people to help lead in worship. And you immediately think, oh yeah, I can play guitar or I can do this or I can, you know. And uh, we know what we mean by that, but probably a more biblical way is to kind of specify, no, we're talking about the singing because that is part of this broader act of worship that's taking place. So that's just kind of a maybe a, a more uh, nitpicky or specific point, but I think it's worth keeping in mind. Um, partially because people can sometimes um, pick a church or reject a church based solely on what the music is like. Now this is an element of worship, and we're going to see that God's Word does have something to say about what our music should be like. But of all of the things, um, you should be far more concerned about the preaching of the Word, the content of what's being taught, the, the, the Christian life of the believers there. There are a lot of things that should kind of uh, be of higher first order significance. You may go to a church where you love the music, but the word is not being taught and the gospel is not being preached. And that's a, that's a bigger problem. So we want to keep everything in its proper place. And so just keeping that in mind can be helpful. Now that said, uh, I do want to see what the Bible has to say about the role that singing plays uh, in the life of the church. And there are really three things I want to point out here. And there are probably more we could add to this. But I want, to, I want us to see how singing is a, is a means of expression, singing is a means of evangelism, and singing is a means of edification. So let's, let's look at Psalm chapter 6 just to start. There's going to be a lot of passages in the Psalms here. I've actually tried to be intentional and um, pick some verses that, that weren't just in the Psalms because you could do a whole, you know, you could teach this class without ever getting out of the book of Psalms, but I want us to see how other passages do talk about this as well. But Psalm 6 is a really powerful psalm that speaks to this whole question of, or this whole role of, of singing as a means of expression. Um, could somebody read maybe just the first seven verses of, of this psalm, Psalm chapter 6? Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long, I fled to bed with weeping and drenched my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Okay. Now, what do we see in these, even just these seven verses, um, about this this song that that David is is writing here? So, lamenting um, sorrow. Yeah, it's a very sorrowful song. Um, it's a very personal song. Um, it always uses these first-person pronouns, right? Do not rebuke me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me. Um, David's not singing about something abstract or something that he heard about. He's singing about what he's what he's going through, what he's experiencing, right? And, and it's some of the, the deepest emotions we can have, that his soul is troubled. So much so that he says, you know, verse 6, I'm, I'm weary with my moaning. Have you ever been in that place where you're so... Sorrowful or worn down or whatever that you're just you're weary with that every night I flood my bed with tears 
just overwhelmed with what's, what's happening. I drench my couch with weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. This is a very powerful, personal, uh, emotional psalm in many ways. Um, now look up at the very top of this psalm because what we see here is this inscription. To the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Shimoneth, which is probably a tomb, um, a psalm of David. So this is something that David wrote that was meant to be sung, and it's a psalm, it's a song that gives expression to the, the things he's experiencing and the feelings that he is experiencing as well. Um, so we see that the psalms and singing in general is, 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 a, is a means of expression for what the church is going through, whether it's us as individuals or the church as a whole. Flip over uh, to Psalm 59. Let's look at one verse here. Psalm 59, verse 16. This is a very different set of emotions, but there's a similar dynamic. Uh, this is, again, is, is David uh, singing here, and he says, But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Um, how is David's experience given expression in these two verses? Or what experience has he had that he's singing about? That's maybe a better way of asking that question. He's praising God for his protection and his care for him. Yeah, yeah. God has been his refuge. God has been his fortress. When he was distressed, you can think back to Psalm Six. He says in a Psalm 6 kind of situation, you've been my fortress, you've been my refuge, you've shown me steadfast love. And so because of that, out of what God has done, out of the experiences of his faithfulness, David says, I will sing, I will sing praises to you. Um, so this is, this is one thing that singing can do, is it can give expression to our feelings, our situation, our emotion even. But that's not all that singing is. Singing is not just self-expression. Uh, and really, when you look at the, the bulk of the times that singing is spoken about, I went ahead and read through all 201 verses so I can speak from some experience on this. Um, singing is not primarily seen as just self-expression. But that is an aspect. That's one of the things that it does. We don't want to lose sight of that. Um, we live in a very emotional culture that's sometimes focuses exclusively on self-expression and emotion, and uh, we want to guard against that being the only way we approach, but we don't want to you know, overcorrect, as it were, and leave out the very real um, fact that this, this is part of what happens in singing. But it's not the only thing. Another thing that happens uh, with, with singing, and specifically the singing of the church, is that it's actually a means of evangelism. And this is maybe something we don't think about as much. But I want to look at two verses. Um, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. Um, could somebody look up 1 Chronicles 16? I'm sure, if you want to do that, 1 Chronicles 16, 23 to 27. And could somebody else look up Acts 16, verse 25? Well, if you want to get that one. So, Sheree, whenever you have. Um, okay. Sorry. For, no, no rush. But. You said 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 16, verse 23 through 27. Okay, so we have these two verses, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. The passage in in First Chronicles that Shri read is, um, memory serves me right, it's where David is um, opening the worship of the, of the tabernacle. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's called all the people together and they're singing this song of thanksgiving. And part of that is the phrase that Shri read where he talks about 
singing before the nations and talking about God as God in contrast to the idols. So you have this kind of public proclamation. Uh, but then the other is Acts 16.25, where Paul and Silas are in prison, and they're singing hymns and, and praying, and the, the fellow prisoners are, are listening. To, they're, they're, they're seeing that. Um, I think what comes out of this is that one of the ways that we bear witness to the gospel is by singing the gospel. Um, one of the ways that people see the love we have for Christ is when they hear us give voice to that. Um, you look at our culture, you just listen to the, the top ten pop songs, and you know what are they singing about? Well, it's mostly either you know, romantic love or physical material things that they want. Um, and it's kind of a you know that's kind of a crass simplification. People are oftentimes more have more depth than a pop song, which is a good thing. Um, but it does kind of show that well in our culture, as in almost every culture, we have kind of certain idols, certain things that we tend to worship, certain things that we want, certain things that we desire, that we love. Sometimes it's respect, sometimes it's you know a solid relationship, sometimes it's family. You know, uh, but you can tell what people love, what they're motivated by, what they desire, based on what they sing. Uh, and uh, that should be true for us as Christians as well, whether it's the congregation gathering together, as in First Chronicles 16, or even just these two believers in a prison cell singing hymns of praise to God. Um, the third thing that singing does is that it's a means of edification. Uh, I want to look at two passages together. Um, Ephesians 5.19 is the first one. Both of these are letters that Paul writes to these young churches, uh, helping to establish them and instruct them in the faith. And he talks about singing. Um, it's very interesting ways. Ephesians 5.19. Paul says this. I'll read this first one. Um, he says, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, now, what, what, what comes out in, that, in those two verses about what our singing um, is supposed to do, what singing does uh, in, in worship? Thanks. Thanks to God. Yeah, thanksgiving is is central to that. It's also something that we do to God. As as Paul says, we're singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Um, Anything else that stands out to you maybe is a little bit odd about the way that he phrases the first part of that, of verse 19? Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and the Spirit. Yeah. 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 We don't tend to necessarily think about that, do we? Um, but we are addressing one another. And I think Paul sheds light on what he means by that in, uh, in the next passage we want to look at, which is Colossians 3. You can just, should be just a few pages over. Colossians 3, verse 16. Could somebody, um, could somebody read that verse when you get to it? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Okay, thank you. So what is this, how does this verse maybe help to clarify what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 5.19? They're useful for teaching and, like you said, edifying and admonishing one another wisdom. So quoting them, it's just letting that message, the beginning of verse 16, letting that message sink and dwell in mm-hmm. things. That's mm-hmm. one of the ways we can do that by reminding each other of those words. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Is there a sense, too, that as we quote mm-hmm. what they sing, that it's, it's edifying and, and um, it's an instructive exercise in that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think, I think so. I think so. Um, and we'll look at some other verses that talk about, you know, the singing of the congregation and singing in the congregation and 
And I think this is one of the ways that we not just profess to the world what we believe about God, about Christ, or even what we profess, or even just us professing to, to God what we believe about him, but actually even reminding each other. Remembrance is a really important theme in the scriptures. And one of the ways that that happens is in our in our singing. Yeah, Tim. Um, That's a good question. That's a good question. That phrase, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which pops up in Colossians 3 as well, uh, there's debate about how do you interpret that. Um, Some people would say, well, that's actually a phrase that's used in, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what's called the Septuagint. And they would use that that those words to talk about the Psalms. Those are all words that are applied to the Book of Psalms. So they would say that really it's 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 three different terms, but it's all talking about the same thing. It's talking about the Book of Psalms. It's not saying, you know, sing a Psalm, sing Holy, 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 and then sing a Chris Tomlin song. You know, um, and on the one hand, it's helpful for us not to to jump back in our minds and assume. You know, that the categories, because when I say a psalm, a hymn, and a spiritual song, you probably think, oh yeah, the Psalter, the hymnal, and then a contemporary song. Well, that that wouldn't have been what it meant to Paul. There wouldn't have been all those categories. But um, we as a church, and the PCA as a whole, would, would not hold to exclusive psalmody, because we would say, well, while that is one way you could interpret this phrase, if you look at all of Scripture, and, um, you know, it's probably better to see that as... Speaking of psalms and and man-made songs as well, they're still spiritual songs in the sense that they're songs of the spirit, of spiritual truth about spiritual things. Um, but it's not only talking about psalms. But that's something that has been debated for a long time and probably will be still. But that's a really good good thing to pick up on. Good question there. Um, but yeah, on this theme of remembrance, I think that this phrase, "Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly." Um, when we, when we hear the word preached, we also want to sing the word as well. Whether we're singing a psalm or singing a song that's reflecting biblical truth. And, you know, when you sing things, you remember them. And uh, that can be one way of meditating on God's word, of memorizing God's word. So I think all these things kind of fit together. But I do want us to see this theme that singing is, um, is something that engages our whole, the whole person. It engages our emotion and gives expression to our experiences. Uh, but it also is something that speaks to our understanding and our knowledge, our wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And doing so, is, as Emily pointed out with the last verse, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Um, there's a lot more that could probably be said about that, but I think those are at least, least three things that singing does in worship. It's a means of expression, it's a means of evangelism, and it's a means of edification. Um, now, before we talk about the content of singing and worship, kind of the text and the tune, anything to add to that? Because there's a lot, a lot more, like I said, that could be said, but or questions. Um, when it says in Ephesians 5:19, um, you know, the singing songs to one uh, to one another, does that literally mean? That when you address another person in songs, you have to sing them. Can you speak them? You you can also speak them as well. Okay. Um, but uh, but uh, the psalms are also written to be sung. So I think what it also helps us to understand, and this is true of both psalms and a lot of other songs that we sing, hymns and things, um, that they'll oftentimes they're not necessarily just addressing God. They're not always addressing God. They're oftentimes singing about what God has done. And when you're doing that, I think it's something that, you know, all of us are part of that singing, but we're also listening in and being reminded and being instructed and being encouraged that, yeah, the Lord is just. The Lord has been faithful. The Lord does, you know, fill in the blank. So um, this would apply to our speech. But I think he's, he's extending it because obviously as Christians, we want to be saying things that are encouraging. But he's saying not only should our conversation be about the word of God, and about biblical truth, and not only should our preaching be about the Word of God and biblical truth, but even our singing is part of, uh, you know, the Word of God and, and biblical truth. Well, I had the picture when, when 
this was this was when I read this that it was like if you were if you were talking to somebody and you're speaking about spiritual things and all of a sudden you're like and there's a truth in this one psalm and then all of a sudden you started singing this psalm and then you went back to talking. Kind of like a musical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there something special about the you know what I'm saying singing to the psalm? <coughs> Yeah, that's that's a very good point. And there's nothing magical about, yeah. you know, singing the words per se. But like, the other a- aspect of that is that singing is unique and it does something that nothing else does. There's a I can't remember the name of the ballerina, but there was a famous story of a ballerina who performed this dance, and she was being interviewed afterward, and they asked her, you know, what is this, what does this mean? And she said, if I could tell you, I wouldn't have had to dance it. You know, and there is there is something unique about that, and sometimes. You can't you can't give voice or explain something, but you know singing that song just it just captures what you are experiencing and what you are going through and the truth you do know and um, I think that's why when you when you listen to stories of people when they're dealing with especially death, oftentimes in those stories they're drawn to some hymn that they remembered or some song that they knew and it just it has a way of capturing and bringing together truth in a way that you know, does it happen that way? Yeah, yeah. Well, and we talk about remembering is important, and people learn through songs and mm-hmm. remember attention. Yeah, and remember I they song. definitely. And so I think that having those tunes in our lives does help shape and encourage and yeah. help us to remind ourselves of the scripture mm-hmm. without necessarily having to sit down and read the Bible to remind us of those verses. Uh, we can sing yeah. to ourselves as another way of reinforcing and remembering. Yeah. <coughs> Thinking about like, historically, too, how, like, for most of history, they mm-hmm. haven't had a way of like playing back a recording. Right. Or like, it right. seems so odd to us to just break into song, but that would have been so much more normal yeah. because that's how music yeah. was. Yeah. It was spontaneous. It wasn't like, let me push play on this track. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you want to ask? Me? Yeah. All, all I was going to say was, so therefore, <coughs> the content and the the types of songs we sing are really important. Yeah, you know, because you know we experience all different kinds of things in life, and if we have a repertoire of songs that only addresses you know certain things, then where are you in those times of your deepest joy or your deepest sorrow or right. things like that? So the the, right. the the types of songs we sing are important. Yeah, and I hope one of the overarching things that we're maybe is being brought to our minds as well is that when we talk about wanting to worship in the way that God is revealed. Part of what that means is, is we're recognizing that God is the one who has made us, and he knows us, and he knows our hearts, and we, he knows how we're wired, and we know, he knows what works and what doesn't, as it were, and he knows that singing is important, and it plays a role that nothing else can do. It's not more important than the preaching of the word, but 
in a sense, it does something that the preaching of the word doesn't do, just like the preaching of something that song doesn't doesn't do. So, um, yeah, so it's an important thing, and it it does it does address us. Um, so that is a good kind of natural connection to this the second thing we want to consider, which is the content of singing in our worship. Singing is an important part of our worship. It does many things, but what about the nuts and bolts? What 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 should our singing look like? And this is a question. This is the question where people can can begin to jump over themselves with, you know, preferences and you know debates about this, that, and the other. Um, but I think it's helpful for us to kind of be specific about what we're talking about because really, when we talk about any song, we're really dealing with two things, which are like a lot of things in life. They are distinct but inseparable. They're, they're connected, but they're not the same thing. We need to approach them maybe somewhat differently. The first part of a song is the text, the, the content of the words that we're singing. And then the second part is the tune, uh, which is the music that we put with that text. Oftentimes, uh, if you pick up that, you know, any of those hymnals, for example, um, at the bottom of every page, you'll have information about the, where the text comes from and information about where the tune comes from. And one thing that's interesting is that sometimes you'll have a text that's from the 8th century and a tune that's from... 1973, and you're like, wow, there's a thousand years, you know, separating the text and the tune. They're not exactly the same thing. Some tunes fit well, and some tunes don't, you know. But they're oftentimes were put together at different points by different people, uh, which I think is helpful for us because we tend to maybe just conflate them and just really talk about the tune, you know, begins to dominate our discussion when really they are distinct. So, what are some principles for helping us think about what the text of our songs? should look like. Well, one thing that I want to suggest to you, um, we talked about those those three terms, elements, forms, and circumstances. Um, I would suggest to you that, that the, the text is really a key part of what we're talking about when we speak of singing as an element of worship. God is, is, um, is very clear about what we are to sing in the sense of the content of what we are to sing. Uh, and we're going to look at what that means. When you come to the tune, I think that is perhaps best seen in terms of this, this idea of, of the forms of worship. It's not that it doesn't matter. It's not that it's irrelevant. It's not that we can be aesthetic relativists, as it were, and you know, it's all just a matter of preference and taste. Um, there are, you know, but, but what we're looking at there is really things like using our common sense and discernment and wisdom and the tradition of the church and input from wise believers. And it's a somewhat different category of questions. God doesn't give us uh, a list of approved tunes. It's interesting that while we have the book of Psalms, which is in many ways a song book, and we even have indication that there were tunes that were sung, we don't have any of those tunes. Those are not come down to us. Um, and, and we'll look at some of those questions more specifically, but I think there is a maybe a somewhat different approach that we should be taking uh, when thinking about text and tune. But enough about that for the moment. What should help govern our, uh, our the text that we sing? What are some, some principles that we can see uh, about the content of our singing in terms of, of the text? Um, I'm just, I, had, I just jotted down, I think, four things. There are a lot more that we could list, but I just want to kind of see the kind of thing we should be looking at. Um, the first thing I think that is clear is that the texts that we sing should be biblical. And that might seem a point that's too obvious to even make, but I think it's important. I think it's important. God in our singing is not primarily looking for what we can add to his revelation, um, but rather we are reflecting his revelation and receiving his revelation. Even in those psalms like Psalm 6, where David is you know, deep within himself, as it were, because of his experiences and his emotions, um, his song is about finding God as he's revealed himself in the midst of that in many ways. Um, so our, our text really should be centered on biblical truth. And I think that expresses itself in two ways. Um, let's look at uh, 2 Chronicles 29, verses 30. This is one text that kind of speaks to this whole question. Second Chronicles, what? Second Chronicles 29. I said 20, didn't I? Second Chronicles 29. 
Um, this is during the reign of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was, was mostly uh, a good king, and he's kind of reinstating uh, biblical temple worship. And Second Chronicles 29, verse 30, um, read an interesting verse about how he does that. Could somebody read that verse, Second Chronicles 29, 30? officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asa the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed down and worshipped. Okay. Now, in what way um, is this speaking to this whole issue of our worship being biblical? That was an awkwardly phrased question. Well, it's the words of David, so most likely a psalm that he had written. Yeah, David and Asaph were two of the chief writers of the book of Psalms. So at a really obvious, obvious level, one of the ways that our singing is biblical is that we sing the Bible. Um, we looked at Colossians 3, we looked at Ephesians 5. There has been debate about, should we only sing Psalms? But regardless of where you come down in that debate, there's not really any debate that we should <coughs> sing Psalms. That's something that's pretty clear from Scripture. And... Um, as you actually look at the history of the church, I've been teaching a class at Heartland kind of on, on singing and worship and things. And one of the things that's, that I've been reminded of and that struck me is that really even hymn singing as we tend to think of it is, is, a, is a relatively recent thing in terms of being really popular. The church is not usually held to exclusive psalmody. I think that's always been somewhat of a minority position. There have been hymns from the very beginning, and I would say even within the Old and New Testament themselves. But that aside... Um, it is certainly true that if you were in a worship service, whether it's Old Testament worship service or ancient church or medieval church or even around the time of the Reformation, most of what you would have heard some in a worship service would have been the book of Psalms in some shape or form. And uh, we've moved away from that in the modern day for, for a whole variety of reasons which we won't get into. But when we do that, we're really robbing ourselves of something precious and I think most of us love the book of Psalms to read and to study. We spent the whole summer as a, as a group working through some different psalms. Uh, but singing is an important part of enjoying the book of Psalms and allowing them to be a source of expression and evangelism and edification as well. And, and you guys know we uh, at Kirk of the Plains try to sing the psalms, not exclusively, but in our studies and our worship, that's part of what we sing. But is that the only way that our, worship, that our singing that the content of our text is biblical, that we're just singing the Bible. Is that the only thing that we're allowed to do? Or is there another sense as well? Well, it, it needs to be truthful in, in the sense that if we're singing something about God or ourselves, that it must be true to the scriptures. Mm -hmm. So it may not be the actual words of scripture, but it would be biblically and theologically correct and honoring mm -hmm. to the Lord to reflect who he is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's where I think um, even when we're not singing uh, the book of Psalms, you know, straight from the book of Psalms, our, our worship should still be shaped by the Psalms because they give us an example of what the content of our singing is to look like. Um, flip over to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Cherie read a, a portion of this chapter earlier, but um, this is a really important chapter in terms of understanding worship. This is a this is when David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the tent, into the tabernacle, and there is this, you know, corporate worship service, as it were, that that takes place, um, and a lot that that happens here. Um, look at First Chronicles 16, and I'll, I'll start reading verse four. Um, this is speaking about David. Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief. And second to him were Zechariah, Jael, Shemaramoth, Jehal, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaiah, Obed-Adam, and Jael, who were to play harps and lyres, Asaph, who was to sound the cymbals, and Benaiah and Je Jehazel, the priest, were to blow trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph 
and his brothers. And here's what they were singing. Uh, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant, sons of Jacob, his chosen one. And it goes on all the way through to verse 36 when the people say amen and and praise God uh, together. Now, there's a couple of things about this that are are really interesting. Uh, And I think one is that... um, as far as I know, this, these exact words are not taken from the book of Psalms. Obviously, David was one of the main authors of the book of Psalms. Um, but he's not just pulling from that. But, but this sounds like a psalm, doesn't it? It feels like a psalm. Um, and I would suggest that the reason for that, partially it's because it's, it's going to be the same Hebrew poetry. That's, that's really more of the form question. Not all of our songs are going to sound like this. Not all of our psalms need to sound like this. There's different poetic techniques and ways of expressing ourselves that we can use, but the content there should be um, should be connected. Um, that our worship, even the man-made songs that we write or that we sing or that we use, should be reflective of that biblical truth and that full-orbed biblical truth. Um, one of the things about this whole song that, that David, that the, the people sing, um, is that it reflects thanksgiving to the Lord. It, it's invoking uh, the Lord. It's proclaiming his works. It's speaking about even their own sin, his promises. It's a very um, wide lens song. It, it speaks to many aspects of God's revelation of himself. And our songs should reflect that as well. As Dad said, we don't want to be um, musically monotone where we're only kind of singing about how serious and you know God is or his justice and his wrath to the exclusion of everything else nor do we want to only sing about um, the high points and the, and the joys you look at the book of Psalms you look at these biblical songs and they do represent the full range of, of human experience as well yeah Tim well you mentioned a while ago about poetry the uh, Hebrew poetry is that more in the Old Testament or the New Testament? Which, which, like, is it split up where it's mostly in this section or not? Yeah, a lo- most of the poetry that we have in the Bible is in the Old Testament. Uh, um, there's actually a whole section of books that are books of poetry. And then a lot of the prophets, which is most of the Old Testament, um, will have poetic sections. But there are some passages in the New Testament where they're speaking poetically or quoting from early hymns, it seems like, and things, but but that's a good question. So we're we're making this argument that a text should be, our text should be biblical, Um, but what does that really mean? So here here are three three things that I think that that means, and it it means more than this, but it's at least three things that it means. First, it means that a text should be God-centered. Flip back to the book of Psalms now. Look at Psalm 95. try to move through this part quickly because we're running out of time. Psalm 95, verse 1. It says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. They're singing. Where is their singing directed? It's directed to the Lord, to the covenant God, to the rock uh, of their salvation. A few pages back, Psalm 89, verse 1, gives a similar idea. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. There's actually a subtle difference between Psalm 95 verse 1 and Psalm 89 verse 1. Does anybody see maybe what the difference is? That's true. I had not seen that. So that's one difference. One is kind of phrased corporately. One's phrased individually. But something else, specifically about the Lord here. Yeah. In Psalm 95, verse 1, but singing, it seems like it's directly to the Lord. Psalm 89, verse 1, 
it's singing of this steadfast love, or maybe to others, like expressing God's yeah. steadfast love to others. Were you going to say that, Tim? Yep. I think that that's what stood out to me, is that you know Psalm 95, verse 1, singing to the Lord, is talking about the 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 object uh, of our worship. We're singing to God. Uh, but we're also it's also God-centered in the sense that we're singing about God. So we're both singing to God and about God. It's God-centered in every sense uh, of the term. Uh, another theme, and this is one that comes out a lot. If you read through those 200 verses about singing, this is what's going to probably hit you upside the, the head. And that is uh, the text of what we sing, our singing should be joyful and victorious. There's a lot of passages we could look at here. Let me just give out some and we'll just listen to them. Could somebody read 1 Samuel 18, verse 6? Shree? Could somebody else get 2 Chronicles 23, 18? All right, Jenny. And uh, I'll do Psalm 105, verse 43. So, uh, Shree, whenever you're ready, 1 Samuel 18, verse 6. As they were coming home, when David, re- when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy and with musical instruments. All right. And in Second Chronicles 23:18, Then Jehoiada placed the oversight of the temple of the Lord in the hands of the Levitical priests, to whom David had made assignments in the temple to present the burnt offerings of the Lord as written in the law of Moses with rejoicing and singing as David had ordered. And in Psalm 105:43 says, So he brought out so he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. Um, now in all of these um, verses, and there's many, many more we could look at, uh, singing is linked with God's deliverance of his people, God's provision for his people, and with the joy of the people. Um, so it is something, as you see, you see this kind of expression coming out again as well, that singing is a means of expression, that when God's people stand face to face with um, God's work and God's person, that they respond in, in singing. They respond in, in joy. Um, and so as we look at how God has been faithful, whether it's to his people in the scriptures or his people over the centuries or us as well, um, we can't help but break out in, in singing, as it were, to be to be joyful at, about the, the victories that he has given and the things that he has done. So that's kind of one, and I don't I don't want to create too stark of a division here because this is not one side and the other side, but one thing and then another thing, if I can put it that way. But another thing that the text should do is that it should also address man's sin and misery. Um, if you're in the Book of Psalms still, you can just flip. Flip back to Psalm 51. This is perhaps, you know, one of the more familiar psalms that we have. But it's Psalm uh, David's song of confession, right, where he talks about the sins he has committed. He says, "Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin." And he goes on to talk about what his sin is and what it has done and the consequences that it has brought about, um, the, the, the need that he has for a clean heart. A similar kind of phrasing in Psalm 69, uh, where the writer says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Now, both of these psalms are talking about um, trials, in a sense, and the reality of sin. But what's what's the difference between them? Um, I would say Psalm 51 is more of... Um, an apology and an asking for mercy. Mm-hmm. And Psalm 69, and apology and asking for mercy because of sin. And Psalm 69 is more of a, I have no strength to fight the sin or whatever situation. It's asking for strength yeah. to fight sin. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, really, you know, Psalm 51 
is addressing the reality of sin in here, right? In our own hearts, our own lives. Psalm 69 is speaking um, the reality of sin out there, you know, in our in our own circumstances, in our world. We live in a fallen world. There are people who want to hurt us. There are circumstances that overwhelm us. Sometimes it's our fight with sin. Sometimes it's other things. Um, but biblical songs, a text that is biblical, will reflect the reality of, of our sin, of our misery, of the difficulties that we face. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that every individual song has to do all of this. That, that would be uh, an impossible task. Um, any more than every prayer has to represent all of Scripture, or every sermon has to say everything that the Bible says. Um, but our, our body of singing, our body of prayers, our body of preaching, if we only talk about this and never about that, if we don't have ways of even giving voice to certain emotions or experiences or truths, then are we really being faithful to Scripture? Are we really having biblical um, worship? Um, any any comments about the text before we just wrap up here? This idea of, of the text as an element of worship. Yeah? Um, something I just, that I just noticed that every time you see um, they're talking about transgressions, he always mentions that the iniquities, are those the same thing? Or are they just different words for the same thing? Or related? Yeah, they're definitely related. Um, that's one example of Hebrew poetry is that they'll tend to say things two or three times to kind of add weight to it. So they'll find slightly different ways of phrasing it. Um, so they'll say like, you know, strong like a mighty oak, like a bull of Bashan. Well, really an oak is strong and mighty and this bull is strong and mighty. They're not saying different the different things per se, but they're giving two different pictures to kind of make the point that much stronger. And that's part of what David is doing there. We're talking about my iniquities and my sins and my transgressions. Um, there are probably nuanced differences that we could talk about in terms of what the words mean, but in general it's talking about the same thing. So, um, looking at the Psalms, and, and songs that we would sing in worship, um, do you think it's fair to say that in order to be biblical, it has to be fairly specific or have enough continuity that there's a traceable idea being conveyed? Yes. Like sometimes, yes. no, but, but sometimes some of the songs that are sung in worship they may have biblical phrases or even words, yeah. but at the same time, you don't really come away with an idea or a message. It's just kind of yeah. I mean, think about the other think about the other elements of worship that are there. Because we've all heard sermons where you're like, okay, the pastor didn't say anything heretical. It, it wasn't that he denied that Jesus was God or anything, but he just didn't say anything, mm -hmm. right? Like he didn't deal with the text. There was no application. It was just kind of vaguely Christian sounding things you know um, but there's nothing there or you've listened to a prayer where someone just repeats you know again all these kind of Christianese catchphrases but nothing's really said you know and that's something that can be falling into with singing as well perhaps more so because we are a more emotionally driven society we tend to prioritize the tune over the text and so as long as we like the music we're willing to kind of just you know, give ourselves to that. Um, and so that that's a real danger, I would say. So part of what our what our standard should be when we're looking at the text of a of a of a song is not just saying, okay, I'm looking at this to see is there heresy here. That's a good first step. Make sure that you're not singing heresy. But God doesn't just say, you know, make sure you don't sing heresy. He says Sing truth, you know, sing about my promises, sing about my character, sing about the deliverance that I, you know, all of these things, sing about my salvation. This is the model and example he's given us. So we're really saying, is it biblical in the, in the, full, in the fullest sense of that term? We're not looking for a kind of what's the lowest that we can go. We're looking for the fullness of what God uh, gives us and, and requires as well. So that's, that's a very <coughs> good point. Um, let me just wrap up because we're... we're probably over time, but I'm going to take a few more minutes just to talk a little bit about the tune. Um, 
I think there's, there's, like I said, when we come to the tune of worship, I think this is something that's probably best viewed through the category of, of forms. Um, which means that while there are things that Scripture has to say, and I'm going to mention a few of them right here, there is also a lot here that we have to kind of work through um, as the church, as God's people. And that's something that has been ongoing for, for 2,000 years. We don't have to figure it all out ourselves tonight. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, but it's a discussion that has been ongoing and will be ongoing. But I think there's probably two dangers we can, at least two dangers we can fall into when thinking about the tunes that we use and worship the music that we actually use in our singing. One is to think that this is the most important thing, right? You know, and that this is what marks, you know, a good song or a bad song or good church or a bad church. Or we tend to, you know, view the worship in light of the singing. Like we talked about at the beginning, you know, I really love the worship today. Well, what do you mean? Well, they sang my favorite song. You know, well, that's that's a whole range of confusions happening there. So that's one danger is to think it's the most important thing. The other danger is to think that it doesn't matter at all. And I think this is perhaps where we could be tempted to fall because we, you know, we live in a culture of relativism. And as Christians, we, we stand firm against moral relativism. We know that there are things that are true and things that are false. But sometimes when it comes to what I'll call aesthetics, which is really talking about uh, beauty or um, things of that nature, we can sometimes think, well, that's really just a matter of taste. And so I like one thing and you like another, and there's, there's no, you can't tell me that, you know, Mendelssohn is better than Miley Cyrus in any substantial way. It's just I like one, you like the other. Um, I'm not sure that that's actually the best or most biblical way to think about things, partially because while our culture will sometimes um, reject the idea that we can say this is beautiful and that's not. Scripture doesn't really reflect that way of thinking. Scripture doesn't give us an exact definition of here's what beauty means and here's how you apply it to architecture and clothing and you know music and all of that. We do have to use wisdom and discernment and work through these things. But Scripture does very clearly say some things are beautiful, some things are not. Some things are lovely, some things are not. We can think of the famous passions or famous passage in Philippians 4:8. You know, whatever is good and true and lovely and beautiful. Um, I was just looking through the, the scriptures, and um, people in the scriptures, or God himself, will identify a whole range of things as being beautiful. Crowns, cloaks, places, people, the moon, ships, houses, animals, jewels, trees. There's some objective standard of beauty to which God says, this thing is beautiful. And other things that he says, this thing is not now, it doesn't resolve all of our questions, but it does, it does frame the question. So what we're trying to do as we look at what, what can we sing, we're looking for things that are examples of good music, examples of beautiful music. It doesn't necessarily just mean you know, high culture forms. So we're not just saying you know, what's the most complicated music possible. Um, but we are looking for things that are, that are well done. We see this reflected in other verses as well, uh, that our, our tune, our singing should be skillful and vibrant. Um, Psalm 33.3 is a, probably a really famous example where God says, you know, sing to the Lord with a new song, play skillfully um, to the Lord. Or different passages in Chronicles, again, where we see that there were the Levites who were called to, to lead in worship. And part of what that meant was that they were to be skilled in their singing, skilled in their and they're playing of music. Um, we are to bring our best to the Lord uh, in every time and age and culture that we have. I think part of that as well, and we'll, we'll just look at um, one verse here, and then I'll, I'll kind of I'll wrap up. Um, but Psalm 149, verse 1, um, I think captures an important truth. It says, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly, or some of your congregations may say his praise in the congregation. It, it means the same thing. But I, this is a really important principle that I think can help to guide us, uh, and that is that our tunes, our singing, should be suitable for congregational singing. There are some songs that sound absolutely amazing, but they're written for soloists, or they're written for a choir, um, one of the recoveries of the Reformation was to say, no, the congregation is the choir. The people are the ones who sing. Um, 
it's really picking up on Paul's language in Ephesians and in Colossians of we are to be the ones who are singing uh, these songs to God and 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 to each other. In the Middle Ages, music had been was a task of the monks, so you had to be a trained musician to to sing praise to God, and the people would sit and would hear this, but they weren't actually participating. And if, we're, our, if our music is going to be something that the average person can participate in, I, don't, I think most of us probably don't have a whole lot of musical training here. Um, it needs to be beautiful, yes, skillful, yes, but also simple enough and straightforward enough that we can actually learn it and sing it and do it and do so well. Well, there's a lot more we could say about um, principles for tunes, principles for text, the role of singing in worship, but hopefully that... That gives us at least um, some feeling of what, what God's word has to say about the context of singing and worship, the content of singing and worship, and how we approach um, all of those things as well. Um, I'm just going to stop there. If people have questions or want to talk more, we can always do that afterwards. But. Are we going to sing that song? Yes, we are going to sing that song. Uh, yeah, we're going to sing